John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Hear now the word of God. John writes, Therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And may the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we come this morning to your word, and we ask, Lord, that you would just help us have a right and clear understanding of it, that you would speak to us and teach us your word by your Holy Spirit. And, Father, that you would be with me, that I would rightly and faithfully handle it. Father, be with all those who are gathered here today, that they would hear your word, that it would sink into their ears and seep into their hearts and bring forth much fruit to the glory of your name. I ask all of this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Well, I've been at Brighton. You've been catching sort of the little snippets here and there, but at Brighton I've been pretty much going through John's gospel for the last year, not all of it, but looking at various portions of it. For example, we've looked at the prologue, the introduction to John. We spent several weeks there. And uh, then we've looked at the various I am statements of John, seven of those uh, in John's gospel, and also the seven signs of John. And as we at Brighton have spent that time in the last year in John's gospel, one of the things we've seen is the importance of signs. Um, and whether we like signs or not, whether we like to read them or not, they are often very important, and we don't want to ignore them. So if you're going along, particularly on an unfamiliar stretch of road, and you see a sign that tells you to slow down because there's construction, or there's a detour, or there's a curve ahead, it would do you well to pay attention to those signs. I know when uh, many, many years ago, when I was still living in Georgia, uh, I lived near a convenience store, and one night I could not sleep. I knew it was a 24-hour convenience store, so I decided I would walk over and get a snack or something, and it had those sliding doors in the front, and it had a sign on the door, which I did not pay attention to and promptly walked into the door, uh, flush in the face, because the sign had said, door locked, please use side door after 11 p.m. I did not pay attention to the sign, and I bore the consequences. But John here writes about signs, and he says uh, the signs in this gospel that he writes about, that of course are not that kind of sign, but he is typically using those for a miraculous sign, a work of power by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we would pay, uh, do well to pay close attention to them as well. The Apostle Peter writes in 2 Peter 1.19, and he's writing about the importance of the word of God here. He says, so we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you would do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in the darkness. And so we would likewise do well to pay attention to these miraculous signs which have been recorded for us in John's word. And that first half of John's gospel is often referred to, the first uh, 12 chapters, 11 chapters rather, referred to as the book of signs because of those seven miraculous signs there. In John 2, we have the Jesus converting water into wine at the wedding feast of Cana. In John 4, he heals a nobleman's son from a distance. 
Uh, in John chapter 5, he heals a paralytic at the pool of Bethesda. In John 6, we have two of these signs, the feeding of the 5,000 and walking on water. In John chapter 9, he heals a man who had been blind from birth. And then John chapter 11, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And John calls special attention to these seven signs, but they are not all of Jesus' signs. For example, uh, when Jesus is beginning his ministry, early in his ministry there, in John 2, 23, we read that many observe the signs, and their signs is plural. Jesus, uh, only one has been recorded, that is water into wine, but many observe the signs, plural, that Jesus was doing. Uh, many believed in him as a result. And then in John 20, we have some who would say, and I would agree with them, that we have an eighth sign recorded for us, and that is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now in John 20, verse 31, John says Jesus performed many other signs which are not recorded. So we can't overlook the signs, but the signs are not the main purpose. They are not the main thing in John's gospel. And the illustration I always use is that signs are never the main thing. They always point to the greater reality. So I remember in 2004, the first time I ever came to a meeting of Mississippi Valley Presbytery, it was here at this church, it was at Salem, and that was back in the day before you had GPSs, or at least they were not a common thing, and so that was back when you would print out your directions, remember printing them out on MapQuest, and several pages, that's how I found Salem, it showed me the direction to Salem, and I knew that I had gotten to the right place, because I saw the sign outside, and it told me, I was there, but the sign was not the most important thing. It was simply what directed me to the important thing, which was the meeting being held in this very sanctuary. Um, and Jesus is the most important thing, the most important one in our passage this morning. All the signs point to him. All the scriptures point to him. And so knowing and understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is the important thing. Knowing who Jesus is and what he has done for our salvation. And so with that in mind, I want us to structure this, uh, I want to structure this sermon around signs of Jesus. But here, uh, I want us to look at these as written phrases which are found in our two verses in our passage this morning. I'm going to call these signs. Think of them as written on uh, a poster board or something for you to pay attention to. Five of these I want us to look at this morning. And the first one is the one that we are the most apt to overlook. And that's the first word we see, therefore. I'm reading from the New American Standard. If you have the English Standard Version, it says now. If you have the King James, it says and. But we tend to overlook those connection words in Scripture because they don't always seem very important. And in the Greek, this is a very simple word, a very short word, three letters, we would say. But it's a word that expresses consequences. It's because this has happened, this is the result. That's what John is telling us. And therefore is a good translation because it helps us to see how this verse is connected to what happens just prior to this. Now, just previous to this, Jesus had appeared to his ten, to ten rather, of his disciples on the evening of his resurrection. Now, Judas has already killed himself. Thomas is not present at the meeting. I always wonder why Thomas didn't get the memo to be there, but Thomas was not there to his chagrin. And when they finally told Thomas that they had seen the Lord, Thomas is very famous, says very famously and very foolishly, 
unless I see his hands, uh, in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And then Jesus appears one week later and then Thomas is present and Jesus says to him, I want you to do what you said. I want you to put your money where your mouth is. I want you to reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here with your hand and put it into my side. And we remember those words, but then Jesus adds these as well. My, uh, he says, do not be unbelieving, but believing. And that's where Thomas responds, this time not with a foolish statement, but with faith. He says, my Lord and my God. Doubting Thomas suddenly becomes believing Thomas, and he doesn't need to touch the wounds is enough for him to see Jesus, uh, for Thomas to believe in him. And here's the important verse to note what the connection is. In verse 29, Jesus says to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who did not see and yet believed. Now, Jesus appeared to many after his resurrection in verse uh, Corinthians 15, Paul talks about all these different people that Jesus appeared to. He appeared to, for example, Peter and to the disciples. At, at least on one occasion, he appeared to more than 500 at one time. But not everyone who heard the gospel of Jesus Christ saw the Lord Jesus Christ resurrected. Not everyone was an eyewitness to this resurrection of Jesus. And those who are not eyewitnesses, who did not see these things firsthand, but still believed, Jesus says they are blessed. And therefore, this is why John is writing this gospel. He's recording these events, these miracles, these teachings of Jesus, so that others will believe, so that you will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The second sign that we want to look at from our passage this morning is the, is the one that is in the word performed. Think of the word performed on a sign. Jesus performed these, performed these signs in the presence of his disciples. Now, these signs help to strengthen the faith of the disciples. In John 2.11, we read that this is after the water into wine at Cana. It says this is the beginning of the signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And then later in John chapter 2, Jesus goes to Jerusalem. He, he cleans out the temple. He chases away the money changers. And the Jews come to him and they ask him for a sign. They say to him, what sign do you show us as to your, as to your authority for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. Now, Jesus is referring to his Body, when he says this, he's referring to the resurrection. If you put me to death, I will rise again on the third day. And then we read in John 2.22, when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is one of the reasons some call the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ as the eighth sign in John's gospel. But you'll notice that the sign was not separated from the word. Jesus spoke the word, and then he gave the sign, and it strengthened the faith of the disciples. They remember what Jesus said, and they believed in him. And throughout the Bible, God 
gives covenant signs. Not as a substitute for faith, but he knows our faith is often weak and fleeting. And he does this out of his goodness and his kindness to strengthen our faith so that we will believe in him all the more. Augustine called uh, these signs, these covenant signs, he called them a a visible sign of a sacred thing. And uh, Calvin, John Calvin says that he refers to these, when he talks about the sacraments, he says they are outward signs by which God seals our consciences, uh, the, the promise of his good will toward us in order to sustain the weakness of our faith. Again, he's talking about the sacraments, uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper that we will be celebrating this morning, that these are described in our confession of faith as signs and seals of the covenant of grace. That is, it is a sign, a sensible sign. It's something you can taste or touch or smell or see. Um, They are physical things that appeal to the senses. And they are seals, they are guarantees from God that his promises are true. I used to, as a hobby in the late 90s, early 2000s, I would uh, build computers, I would put them together, and uh, uh, you'd have to put an operating system on there. And I remember this is back in the days when Windows 98 was the operating system, but I had an official Windows 98 CD, ROM, that you could install on the computer, and it came with a seal, and the seal was to show that this was authentic. This was not a bootleg or a copy or something like that. This was the real thing, and these seals show that his promises are the real thing. That language of sign and seal comes from Romans 4.11, where it talks about Abraham, that he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believed. And this is part of the covenant of grace, that promise of the gospel, that sinners who would otherwise stand guilty before God are saved by his grace, the redeeming and saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ through faith in him. And again, the Lord's Supper is... A sign and seal of that covenant of grace. It's an outward sign and seal of the certain promises of what Jesus has done for us. What has he done for us? His body has been broken for us. His blood has been shed for us. And his perfect sacrifice, sealed in his life, has secured our forgiveness of sins. And through his death, we have spiritual life and eternal life in him. Because of this, we are nourished through this covenant meal. We are nourished and strengthened by the Holy Spirit. Now the disciples were eyewitnesses to these miracles and to these events. Peter again says in 2 Peter 1.16, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses to his majesty. And John says this in his first epistle, John, 1 John 1.2, For what we have seen with our own eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our own hands, John says, we have made this known to you. The disciples saw these things, they preached them, they taught them, and now they have been written down for us, they have been recorded for us in God's word. Uh, 
We are a generation that so easily believes anything that we see on a television screen or uh, perhaps written down somewhere. I saw it on the internet, so it must be true. But dear friends, this is God's word which has been given to us. It is his breathed out word. It has been recorded by faithful eyewitnesses. And so we must believe it. And there is great blessing in believing it. And that's the third sign that we want to look at from our passage. That word believe. Verse 31, these have been written so that you may believe. And this is a major theme in John's gospel. It was written so that you might believe in Jesus Christ. And we see that theme of belief is woven throughout John's gospel. John 1.12, for as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Or John 6.40, for this is the will of my Father, Jesus says, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I, I myself will raise him up on the last day. Jesus says, uh, you probably remember this one, best of all, John 14, 1, uh, let not your heart be troubled, you believe in God. Jesus says, believe also in me. And in John's gospel, there are many who see the signs and miracles of Jesus, but they don't believe, they don't have true faith, at least at that time, they don't have true faith. And so in John 3, Nicodemus, the Pharisee, comes to Jesus. He's seen the signs. He seems to be saying the right words, but he does not understand. He does not understand these spiritual things. And in John 6, there are those who were fed by the bread and the fish who followed Jesus to the other side of the lake and yet don't believe. We see that because they leave when Jesus' teaching gets too difficult at the end. And so we must have true faith. Uh, the Shorter Catechism says this in question 86. What is faith in Jesus Christ? Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. And so faith is more than simply an intellectual understanding. It's more than simply a passive observance of certain things. I'm sure many of you watched college football games yesterday and you were being passive observers of that. That is not true faith. You may have had true faith your team would win, but that is not the kind of faith we are talking about here. The true faith that John is talking about and Jesus is talking about is a letting go of dependence on ourselves. We are no longer resting on the things of this world, but we are depending solely on the Lord Jesus Christ and his saving work. We are resting in him alone as our savior and our redeemer. It is like John, John Newton's hymn famously says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. In Puritan John Flavel says this, he says, what is the char true character or description of a believer? He says, he is one that having been convinced of his sin and misery and of his own and all other creatures' inability to save him and of the ability and willingness of Christ to save him, lets go of, uh, lets go all holy dependence on creatures and on his own righteousness and casts himself entirely upon Christ for righteousness 
and life. And dear friends, I ask you this morning, do you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you letting go of your own goodness, your own works, and instead trusting in him, resting upon him for salvation? Have you fled to the Lord Jesus Christ? And is he all your refuge and all your righteousness? This is what John wants us to do, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what we believe. This is the fourth of our signs, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And this phrase helps us to see who Jesus really is. He is Jesus. The name Jesus means the Lord's salvation, or the Lord is salvation. He is truly man. He is truly flesh and blood. He is the Word made flesh who dwelt among us. He lived a life of perfect obedience to the law of God. And he died a real death on the cross as that Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he is the Christ, the promised Messiah, the one in whom all the promises of God find their fulfillment. They find their amen in Jesus Christ. He is that promised Redeemer who is born of a woman, promised all the way back in Eden as the one who would come and crush the head of the serpent. And he is the Son of God. He is the only begotten Son of God. The second person of the Trinity, very God of very God, fully God just as he is fully man. And this verse is one of the places that we see those phrases like Christ and Son of God being linked together, uh, uh, often used synonymously or virtually synonymously in Scripture. So Peter, when he confesses who Jesus is, he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Or Martha, just before her, her brother Lazarus' resurrection, she tells Jesus, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. And even Jesus' enemies understood that. When he is on trial, when he is before the high priest, he is asked, he says, tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And so these phrases are linked together. It's almost like they're great big equal signs in our text. The point is to this truth that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Son of God. And even though the titles mean different things, they are used really almost equivalently here. Christ meaning uh, or pointing to the fact that he is the Son of God. And this is what we are called to believe, dear friends. He is more than a prophet. He's more than a moral example. He's more than a good teacher that we have been given here. He is more than that. Uh, Paul says in Galatians 2.20, pointing to the importance of these things, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And then, making that equivalence, he says, the life I live in the flesh shall live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. You see how those two terms are linked together in that verse as well. And this is important for us to understand and to know because a false Christ, a false Jesus cannot save us. Only the one who is truly, who has truly come in the flesh, who is truly the Son of God, is he who saves us. Uh, Peter's confession of Jesus was after two questions that came from Jesus. Jesus said, who do the people say I am? And Well, there are all sorts of opinions. You're uh, one of the prophets or John the Baptist come back from the dead. But then he says, who do you, I, who do you say I am? 
you are the Christ, you are the Son of God, and that must be our confession as well, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. We must believe this, and we must live our lives as a response to this truth. And then lastly, there's that word life. John says that believing you may have life in his name. And uh, some of the best remembered verses in John's gospel speak of life and this life which is promised in Jesus Christ. John 1.4, in him was life and the life was the light of men. Of course, John 3.16, whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. John 6.35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He says in John 11.25, I am the resurrection of the life. He says in John 14.6, I am the way and the truth and the life. And so he is our very life, and he is our life because of what he says in John 10. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. We have life in Jesus Christ because he laid down his life for us. And John will write in 1 John 2.25, this is the promise which he made to us eternal life. He writes in 1 John 5.11, and, and this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. This promise of life can only be found in Jesus Christ. If we are not in Jesus Christ, we will not have this life, but we do have it in Jesus Christ. Uh, the 17th century Scottish Presbyterian minister, David Dixon, was uh, dying. He was on his deathbed, and someone came to him and asked him there on his deathbed, uh, as he was dying, what, what, where is your trust? Where is your, your trust here as you near the end of your life? And he says, I have taken all my good deeds and bad deeds and thrown them together in a heap and fled from them both to Christ, and in him I have peace. And this is where our peace is found. And John says that the things that he had witnessed and written down and recorded, he said, these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. He says in 1 John 5, 13, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. You can know that you have eternal life. You can have that assurance of salvation. It is a sure and certain thing. It is a certain promise which comes to God, but understand it is only found in Jesus Christ. He is the one who performed these signs found in John's gospel. He is the one who is the Christ, the Son of God. He is the one in whom we must believe, and he is the one in whom we have life. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come this morning and ask that this word uh, which you have given to us, these words of your faithful apostle John, which point to the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would see these words and believe and have life in his name. And Father, we ask that you would help us to know these truths as we prepare to come to the table at this time. We ask all of this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. As we prepare to...
come to the table this morning. I'm going to read to you uh, the words of institution and the warning, but I would impress upon you what I just said in the sermon, that is that these are a sign, the sacraments, the Lord's Supper, a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. I always tell our congregation that when you come to the table, you should come, first of all, with a mournful heart because you see before you what the Lord Jesus Christ did because of our sin, the great sacrifice that was made, that the only begotten Son of God, who never sinned, who never broke his Father's holy law, willingly went to the cross for our salvation, laid down his life for us, his body broken, crucified upon the cross, his blood spilt, shed upon that cross. And the, the promise to us is that his blood cleanses us from all unrighteousness. It washes away our sins. Rosemary played that uh, just, uh, I think, during the offertory. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And so when you come to the Lord's table, don't come to it. Don't be a passive observer. You're not watching a football game. You're not watching a news broadcast. You're coming and you're participating. You're communing with one another as the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, but you're also communing with the Savior. You're coming with repentant hearts. You're coming with hearts that sorrow over your sins, but you're also coming with hearts of faith that trust in the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. And so you come to the Lord's table with sorrowful hearts because of your sins. You leave with hearts that rejoice because you know that Jesus has done what you never could do. He has paid that perfect price for our sins, and in him may your faith be strengthened, that your sins are forgiven, they are paid in full by the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 11, the words of institution followed by the warning uh, to examine ourselves. Paul says, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, "This is the cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner." shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in doing so he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. And for this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. So when you come to the table, come with a believing heart. This is a sacrament for believers, those who are Christians, those who are part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, those who trust in uh, the Savior, the Lord Jesus, who come uh, not celebrating sin, but come with repentant hearts, desiring to put away sin and to live their lives faithfully before the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you are uh, of that mindset, or if you are even struggling with sin that you wish to put away, you are invited to come to the table and to partake of this, and to put all your trust in the Savior who will forgive you of your sins and will help you to overcome your sins.
to the glory of his name as we 